is a podcast recording for the nature of things. This podcast was initially recorded March 27, 1987. We're fast approaching the moment when mild weather will bring out a legion of lawn tenders and gardeners rake in hand. Their object will be to clear the leaves and other debris from their lawns and gardens. Still later, as things become even milder, you begin to see evidence of uh, cleaning of garages and even attics of accumulated debris. That's my purpose today, to do a little attic cleaning, to get rid of a b bit of debris in the form of unanswered questions posed through the winter, but deemed more or less inappropriate for attention until now. I made some point a couple of weeks ago about the effect of rapid disappearance of the snow, and that reminds me of a question that's been rattling around up there since early winter. It shows that some people are very observant. The question went something like this. It came from someone who lives a few miles from Beaver Lake. I notice as spring progresses that the geese tend to disperse more, and you see a lot of small groups flying singly. Does that have anything to do with nesting? I'll have to admit I'm going out on a limb here because I don't really know the answer. But I think that the separation has more to do with the opening up of food sources than it does with nesting. Geese still seem to prefer to feed together in flocks when adequate food sources are available. And I tend to believe that this dispersal consists of family groups taking advantage of feeding areas which are adequate for them, but not for the whole group, the whole flock. The small groups always seem to join together with the larger ones during the daily rest periods. Still, I have to admit, finding nesting geese in central New York before the bulk of the flocks have left. I think it was Holland's Island where I saw nesting geese in early May, well before the hordes of had, at Beaver Lake had left for the north. Another early spring phenomenon that has been on a couple of people's minds is why skunk cabbage smells like skunk. Again, I had to confess that I didn't really know the answer to that question. The curiosity of the questioner was whether or not the skunk smell of the skunk and that of the skunk cabbage are related, perhaps the same chemical. For those of us who are fascinated with the oneness in nature, the evidences and instances in which plants and animals operate on variations of the same process, such knowledge might be of interest. To botanists, however, it appears that the source of the smell of the skunk cabbage is of little importance. It has no known economic, medicinal, or health implications. I did learn a bit about toxins, aromatic resins, and flavoring materials in doing my research. I also learned that the chemistry of skunk cabbage that interests economic and medical botanists is calcium oxalate, a salt of oxalic acid. The burning, biting effect of the taste of skunk cabbage comes from the sharply crystalline nature of the oxalate in skunk cabbage. I also found out that thorough drying is a much more effective means of removing the biting effect than is boiling, even if a number of waters are discarded. Those who have tried it indicate that it makes all the difference and that dried and reconstituted skunk cabbage greens do make a worthwhile addition to soups. Always be aware, however, of the danger of collecting false hellebore, a skunk cabbage look-alike. Hellebore contains an alkaloid, a base rather than an acid salt, that produces a severe burning sensation along with attendant headaches if eaten. Just take my word for it. If you can't say to yourself with conviction that you can recognize false hellebore as soon as it emerges from the ground, you have no business even sampling skunk cabbage. 
Play it safe and avoid extreme discomfort. What? Oh, yes, I did discover the, that skunk oil is butyl mercaptan, for what that's worth. My only warning there would be that if you are not familiar with the moods of the skunk, which I have normally found to be non-aggressive, don't mess around with this furry butyl mercaptan factory. Then there was a question about red-winged blackbirds. Flocks of them appear every March, so many in some places that they seem more numerous than starlings, all males. During that time, there are only a few which really show the red shoulder patches. Then of a sudden, the groups disappear and all you see are a few males dispersed across the wetland, all of which are wearing their bright red patches. Soon you notice females also distributed across the wetland, and then nesting begins. Yeah, the display of the shoulder patches, which are erectile, is definitely related to the establishment of the nesting territory. The females are in a slightly different migratory timetable than the males. More about that sometime soon. That's all I have for this week. This is John Weeks saying thanks for listening. Tune in next week and keep it natural.